Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. My name is Joel, and I get to be the pastor here at Three Creeks, and welcome to church. I just want to say thank you so much for being a church that I love to bring my family to. As a dad, I am thrilled to get to be a part of a church family that loves it when the jellyfish come in and interrupt and sit down. I'm thrilled to get to be the pastor of a church that wants Super Saturdays to keep growing. And, you know, as you can imagine, to have a Super Saturday like this, or like we did yesterday, or like we will in July, like we will in August, uh, we've got to rent this space, we've got to get the bounce houses, and it, it, it costs money. And so for those of you that give to our church, I just want to say thank you, because our church is essentially funding those events. And yesterday at about 12.15, I got to stand up here on this stage and talk to all these kids about God and Jesus and how much he loves them. And I got to pray a prayer. And I got to, I I was inviting these kids to pray it back with me. And, and I just, I was kneeling down at the time and I just, I just prayed it into the microphone and I could hear all these little voices praying and saying, God, like I need your help. And I want to give my life to you. And so as a dad, as a father, I just want to say thank you so much. We bring the jellyfish in whenever we watch people get baptized. And as soon as Skylar got baptized, I was standing over here. And I looked over here, and my seven-year-old daughter, Cooper, was sitting right there. And she doesn't even know what this means yet, I don't think. But she's just standing there raising her hand and singing. She doesn't even know the song, I don't think. But she's just there standing there. And, And it's because she watches some of you worship God that way. And I walked over behind her, and I just hugged her, and I say, hey, I'm so proud of you, Cooper. I love watching you follow Jesus. And she said, Dad, 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 I want to get baptized someday, but I'm not sure when. <laughs> I said, we're going to figure that out. We're going to figure that out. And so I just want to thank you as a father for being a church that celebrates steps of obedience and then does it in front of our kids, and uh, I'm just so very grateful. And, and you know, the reason... Uh, Right, not, not the reason, but one of the, one of the things that can happen when somebody takes a step of obedience is it often inspires somebody else to do the same. I can remember a time when we were up here and Kendall Latshaw was baptized in that tub. And then the following week, I talked to another person in our church named Campbell Payton, who was a, a, at the time a sophomore at Gehanna Lincoln High School. And she said, because I saw Kendall take a step And because I could relate some to Kendall's story, I too want to take that step. And so I told Chase, uh, he's in the back, usually we have to set up and tear down all this stuff every week, but in the summer, we get to leave it here because there's no school. And then I told him, I said, hey, we're going to leave this tank up here. I'm going to pray all summer that people just keep getting baptized. And so maybe uh, it's just, maybe that's a step that you want to take, that, uh, that you too want to come up here and publicly declare your faith in Jesus. And I've been praying for that to happen. All right, into today's message a little bit. Up until the time of Louis Pasteur, I don't know if it's Pasteur or Pasteur, whatever, Louis Pasteur, people believed in something we now call spontaneous generation, which is essentially that living organisms could just pop out of nowhere. 
So a disease would pop up and doctors would just assume that it was genetic and it just kind of came up out of nowhere. Well, in 1864, Louis Pasteur demonstrated that spontaneous generation is impossible in the natural world. That all life comes from other life, which meant that if someone contracted a disease, it didn't just happen. It had to be caused by tiny little organisms called microbes or germs that we cannot see with our own eyes. Later, we developed powerful enough microscopes, and we figured out that these little microbes are everywhere. In fact, you right now are breathing thousands of them. And at any given time, there are literally 20 million microbes or germs on your body, which is why Americans spent $618 million last year on hand sanitizer. People in the medical community 150 years ago, they didn't buy it. They said, no, no, this is, a, this is something that we can't wrap our minds around because we can't see it. Their question was, they were saying, wait, you're trying to tell us that these diseases that we can see are caused by something that we cannot see? 150 years ago, people didn't buy it. There was a guy right before Louis Pasteur that tried to tell everybody that this was the case. His name was Ignaz Simowis, who had the same idea. Doctors would go in, and they would go from patient to patient to patient without ever washing their hands in between. And so they would go and, and touch somebody and treat somebody who had a disease, maybe even a dead corpse, and then they would go without washing their hands and go deliver a baby. And people were dying because these diseases were being passed around. And this guy was just trying to say, guys, you just got to wash your hands. But they could not, they wouldn't listen to him because his whole theory was built on something that they could not see. You see, they had a hard time believing that things that they could see were happening were caused by things that they could not see. But today, obviously, we have microscopes that can tell us the whole story. And we, 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 we scratch our heads and go, how did they not understand this? The lives that could have been saved, the pain that could have been avoided if they'd have just believed him. Paul ends the book of Ephesians by reminding the Ephesians that on a different plane, there's an unseen world that just as radically affects the world that they were living in and the world that we are living in. Friends, there's something that we cannot see that could be and is, I would propose, having a significant effect on our lives. And sometimes it's hard to wrap your mind around because you can't see it. You want to be able to touch it. You want to know that it's real. But you can't. And so you begin to wonder, is it real? We've been in Ephesians for what seems like half a year. Well, because it's been half a year. We've gone through Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, and now we're in Ephesians 6. And let me just remind you that this wasn't originally a book in a volume of books. This was a letter written by a man named Paul. He was a first century missionary, and he planted a church in a city called Ephesus. And the church was growing, but his time there was done. And so he left, and he got arrested, and he got put in prison. And then he wrote a letter to all of his friends in Ephesus, and this is... What we have in our Bibles is the book of Ephesians. And, and he starts off Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the last few paragraphs of his letter, with the word finally. In other words, 
I'm coming towards the end of the letter, friends. And so if you put yourself in the situation, you can also imagine that Paul may have been writing finally because he wasn't sure if he was ever going to get to write him another letter because he's in prison and his life is under threat all the time. And so when he writes finally, he's saying, this is the last thing that I'm probably going to say to you, church. So this is important. These are my last words. This is verse 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 6, and this is what he writes. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, stuff you can see. But it's rulers and authorities and powers of the dark world that you can't see. That's where the fight is at, Ephesians. That's where the fight is at, Three Creeks. Paul writes about the presence of a powerful and active spirit world. Cosmic powers of darkness. Spiritual forces of evil. But we can't see it. You know what I mean? We can't actually see it with our eyes. And so it, it, it begs the question, do you believe in it? We've watched movies like The Exorcist or Paranormal Activity. And so in some ways we've been entertained by it. We've seen Will Ferrell in the SNL skit. We've been, we've been entertained by the idea of it. And, and I'm, I kid you not, Cooper, my seven-year-old, on Thursday, out of nowhere, walks up to me, Dad, are devils real? And I felt, you know that feeling you have whenever you're thinking about buying running shoes, and then you get on the internet, and it's like all ads for running shoes, and you're like, wait a minute, how do they know? That's how I felt. Cooper goes, Dad, are devils real? I was like, how, did I say it? Did I say it out loud? How in this, how did this topic come up? I said, how did you even know to ask that question? She said, I read about it in a book. And so this is something that even at age seven, we begin to become curious about or fascinated with. Is it real is the question that she wanted me to answer. And so is Satan real? Are demons real? Are they real in Gehenna? Or is it in other places in the world? The Bible, listen to this, the Bible describes Satan as an accuser, an adversary, a liar, a destroyer who has a quiver full of flaming darts and is looking to stick you. And, and honestly, serious question, when's the last time you thought about that? When's the last time you thought about that? Because if I told you that there was an actual person who was living in your neighborhood who is out to destroy you, they're lying to you, they're deceiving you, and their ultimate goal is to destroy your life. If I told you there was a person in your neighborhood who was out to get you, how much would you think about that? I would propose that it would be more than you've thought about Satan, even though you can't see him. I was posed the question about two weeks ago, would I take this deal? Let me just pose it to you. Would you take this deal? If I offered you $10 million... But if you take it, there is an intelligent snail who will constantly 
be hunting you for the rest of your life. And if that snail touches you, you die. Would you take that deal? Would you take the deal? The snail, it cannot be trapped. It can only be deterred. It cannot be held in a box, and it will always be hunting you. It moves as slow as any snail does, but it's, it's very intelligent. But if you take the million dollars, it's hunting you forever. Would you take that deal? And I really had to think about it. And I, tell, I asked that question to illuminate the point that when we feel like we're being hunted or when we feel like we're being watched or pursued, it makes us fearful. It makes us paranoid. It's not something that we just don't think about. If you took that $10 million, you'd be thinking about that snail for the rest of your life. And so the question is, how often do you think about the fact that there's an enemy who you can't see who wants to destroy you? We've got to understand this. This is, this is maybe the most important part of this intro. Satan is not interested in your recognition. All he wants is your destruction. He does not care if you know who he is or what he did or where he's at. He doesn't care. All he cares about is your destruction. Satan's sole goal is to get you to join him in rebelling against God and so that you will accompany him to hell. That is his goal. He's an accuser and a liar and a deceiver, and he's after you, and there's a battle going on. I know we can't see it, but that doesn't make it not real. And so Paul is trying to get the Ephesians to understand there's something going on here that's more than flesh and blood. Satan is... He doesn't care if you know who he is. He doesn't care if you know where he's hiding. In fact, he's really good at hiding. And to quote Tony Campolo, this is what he wrote. He wrote, Satan, the devil. He's the one appearing in movies, telling us that romantic love and sexual pleasure are the keys to fulfillment. He's the one behind the economic system that teaches us that money is the key to success and happiness. He's the one who sits in the psychologist's chair offering ultimate hope in life apart from God. He's the one teaching in churches that life is about you and God wants to make you rich and hell is just an idea and that standards of the Bible are for a different time and place. He's the one who whispers to you that it's a ridiculous idea to believe that he is real. Because it's crazy to believe in something that you can't see, right? So if this is true, if this is true, and whether you're religious or not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight the fact that I, it is. But if it's true, what do we do? How do we respond? What, how, do we, how do we live our lives knowing that there's a, a battle that we cannot see going on for our hearts and for our lives? How do we respond to this? Well, there are two common errors that we could make. And, and as I've looked at these three verses, I, I want to highlight both of those for you. And then there are two things that we need to understand so that we can contend in this fight really well. So the first, the two common errors that we could make. C.S. Lewis in Screwtape Letters is the one that highlighted this. If you've never read Screwtape Letters, it is a book that illuminates the reality of the spiritual world around us. And if you haven't read it, you've got to read it. It's so good. This is what C.S. Lewis writes in Screwtape Letters. He goes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One 
is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So the first error that we can make after having this conversation is to disbelieve in their existence and say, ah, this is just an illustration of how life is hard and it's not really a battle. There's not really anything going on because we can't see it. That would be error number one, to say that it doesn't exist. Number two would be to feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in this. Now, to the Ephesians, the people that Paul was writing to, this would not have been a new topic. They were very familiar with demonic activity. They were superstitious. They were, there was a lot of occult activity. And so to talk about spiritual things or unseen things, that would have been, it would not have been a mistake that the Ephesians would make. They would have said, they would have kind of sat up and said, Paul, instruct us in this because we know that this is real. They, they would not have denied the existence, but our culture, generally speaking, makes the opposite error we tend to think that educated people would not believe in the demonic or the spiritual battle. After all, they don't show up in microscopes, so is it real? I I do, and here's two reasons why I believe this battle is real. First is that the Bible says that there's really no question that this is real. In fact, if you look at the life of Jesus, he spent a lot of his life battling against demonic forces. And so if you're going to say, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I don't really believe in demons or demon possession or Satan, well, you're kind of reducing Jesus to some kind of superstitious weirdo. You know, if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and, and Jesus is the truth, then you really, you really don't have an option to say that this isn't real or true because Jesus said it was and his whole life demonstrated that he believed that it was. So that's number one. Second... I can see and you can see the effect of demonic activity in the world. Remember the Holocaust. That was not an angry mob that got ticked off and just started killing people because of rage. That was a systematic, strategic, planned execution of millions of people called the final solution. And the more I learn about the Holocaust, the more baffled and without words I am. I, I just can't even wrap my mind around how somebody would do something like that. And it wasn't just a person. It was a whole group. It was, it was thousands of people that were on board. And, and, and then the more I learn, the more I just have to ask the question, how could something like this have happened? Consider child pornography. I I get sick saying the words. It's beyond abhorrent desires. It's it's pure evil. And the only words that I can can come up with is, how, how is it even possible that somebody would do that? How could it happen? And the Bible says that there is an enemy, dark, demonic forces who twist and amplify evil and persuade people to do real evil things. When you look at chapters of human history, there's no way to look at it and not shake your head at different points and go, how could that have possibly happened? And the Bible says it's easy. There are, there's demonic activity. There's a spiritual battle. 
Satan and his demons have taken evil desires and twisted them to do unfathomable, unimaginable things. And I would argue that most of us, on on a very practical and personal level, can see the effects of the spiritual world even in our own lives. Have you ever looked back at a different point in your life on a decision that you made and you go, what was I thinking? How could I have done that? Why, why did I make that decision? Well, at the time, it made a lot of sense. It looked attractive. Nobody could talk you out of it. But looking back, you go, man, what was I thinking? Can, can you have that experience and not see that there's a battle going on. This is more than bad parenting and human dysfunction. This is pure evil. Gasoline being poured on a sinful fire that was birthed in our hearts. Some of us are even dealing with this right now, like today, like this week, where there's something that you're dealing with that you just, it's more than flesh and blood. The timing and the strength of some of the temptation that you have felt recently has felt spiritual. The fierceness of the opposition against God and the way that he wants you to live, it feels stronger than ever to the point where you didn't even think you were going to come to church today because you just didn't want to face the reality of the spiritual battle that you're in. You want to ignore it. It's real. The Bible says it's real, and I can't see it, and you can't see it, but we have felt it. So that's mistake number one, would be to deny the existence and say, it's not really going on. This is just flesh and blood. Here's mistake number two. We, we unhealthily obsess over it. We, we grow in fear. We're always living in this, this paranoia or this fear that somebody is going to beat us, out to get us, out to kill us. And... Um, I know people who engage in spiritual warfare wrongly by making it weird and superstitious rather than simply, as Paul writes, being strong in the Lord. They obsess and they let fear grow rather than trusting in the Lord. As a camp director, I got to be a camp director for a bunch of years before I came here. And every week there was a kid with a unique story or a unique family and the word would spread around camp like wildfire. You know what I mean? Like Sunday afternoon, all the kids are getting checked in, and, and one counselor meets his kid, and the, and the story comes out. Oh, my goodness, did you hear? The grandson of the owner of the Kansas City Chiefs is at camp. And all the counselors are like, whoa, no way. Is he in my group? And, and people start to try to figure out, oh, did you guys hear? The daughter of the pioneer woman is here at camp this week. And people start talking about it, and it's like, who is she? And then one time, I heard this story about, and and. and this story is just palpably real because of how this kind of stuff happens. One time, this girl checked into camp, and uh, she told her counselor, I'm a witch. And so the word gets out, did you guys hear? There's a witch in the camp. Counselors start talking over, over the barbecue on opening night of camp. Hey, did you guys hear? There's a witch in the camp. Leadership team catches wind. Did you guys hear? There's a witch in the camp. And so they're, they're having their camp service on opening night, and they brought in the camp speaker, and they're kind of behind stage talking, and the leadership team goes to the speaker. They're trying to warn him. They're trying to help him, and they say, hey, did you hear? There's a witch in the camp. And the speaker goes, no, nope, never, didn't, didn't hear that yet. And 
they were kind of finishing up some of their songs. And so the speaker just kind of came and poked his head out into the auditorium or the camp room. And he sees all these kids singing about Jesus. And, and then he comes back to the back room. And the leadership team says, did you, did you notice which one she was? Did you see the witch in the camp? And the speaker said, no, but I just saw 300 kids worshiping Jesus as the king of kings. And the speaker said, hey, you tell me who's bigger, who's greater, the one who's in us or the one who's in the world? What do we have to be afraid of? Sometimes when you talk about this stuff, people get all out, they get sideways and they forget who's greater. That he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world. I came in here this morning. We were praying with the production team down here, just stake, staking our claim on this room. I could imagine preaching a message like this that Satan would not want me to do this. And I believe that that is real. But we prayed that the love and the blood of Jesus would cover over this room and that we would sense God's protection in this room. And I believe that because the one who's greater, the one who is greater is in me than the one who's in the world. I've shared this story before too. I don't have time to tell the whole thing. But I've, I've witnessed a demon be cast out of someone. I was in Ethiopia in 2010 and I watched it happen. If you want to hear the whole story, you can either search through like, the last 75 podcasts of Three Creeks, you'll find it somewhere in there. Or I'll tell you about it. But it happened. And, and I, my, this is not something I'm familiar with or comfortable with. But I had to know a little bit more. And so this one pastor that I saw that was really engaged in this and had been a part of casting this demon out of this person, I said, I'm riding with you to lunch. And I got in the car with him. And, and I was just blown away. I couldn't believe what I just saw. But he was so nonchalant. It was almost as if nothing happened. And so I'm peppering him with questions. And one of the questions I asked was, does it always take that long? Because it felt like they prayed for her for like 20 minutes. I said, does it always take that long? He said, no. <laughs> He's laughing. No, no, no. But that, that was a stubborn demon. And he looked over at me and he said, but I knew we would win. And he, he, he was essentially asking me the same question. Who's greater? The one who's in us or the one that's in the world? I know who's going to win. What do we have to be afraid of? And, and that, that nonchalance, that joy, that peace that he had, that is the posture that we ought to take towards some of these attacks that are being thrown our way. It doesn't, it's, it's not that it isn't real. It's just that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. If you look at verse 11 and 12 again, Paul highlights those two mistakes. He says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, stuff you can see, but it's against rulers and authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, it's real. So don't deny the existence. But what does he say in verse 10? He says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. This is the first of the two things that I need you to understand as I come towards the end of my message here. The first thing that we need to understand, how to keep the corrupting influence of the enemy out of our lives. Number one, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We will not be able to do that until we are convinced of our own weakness. We cannot be strong in the Lord if we think we are strong ourselves. 
we cannot experience the reality of his mighty power if we think we have just enough power to get through this week. We can't experience it. We're not a candidate for his strength or his power if we've got it all taken care of. To be strong in the Lord is to know that we need his help. To be strong in the Lord is to know that our power is not strong enough. And it starts with, this is important, this all starts with our righteousness. Which is what makes us acceptable to God. We, every one of us, are sinners and what makes us acceptable to God is not our righteousness or our strength, how, how good we are at righteousness. It is only God's righteousness replacing our unrighteousness that makes us acceptable to God. And that's a free gift. That's the good news. It's a free gift that's being offered to every person. The bad news is that tons of people will reject that gift because they're strong in their own righteousness. They, 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 we would just want to be good enough for God. Every one of us is aware that we're not perfect, but we're not quick to admit that we're not good enough. We want to say we're good enough. We donate to charity. We're nice to our neighbors. We, we do good things. But the reality is, is that we've got dark hearts that are unrighteous. And if we're going to rely on the strength of our own righteousness, well, there's nothing for God to come in and be stronger for us in. It's the same with every other dimension of our lives, too. It goes beyond just that. Even after we become Christians and admit that we need God's strength in righteousness. Consider your family. Does that ever worry you? Are my kids going to turn out okay? Are we going to be okay? Do you ever feel weak in parenting? Well, in, in, in some sense, congratulations, because you are now eligible for God's strength. If you think you can do it on your own, well, then that's a different story. Consider marriage. Have you ever felt weak in marriage? Well, great news. You are currently eligible for God's transforming power in your life. If you don't feel weak, well, what would you need him for? Consider your financial stability in the future. There, there's two takes on this. The first would be to look at your future through the lens of your own strength, your own job security, your own resume, your own 401k. You look at it through the lens of your own strength. That's one way to do it. Or you can be strong in your confidence in God to take care of you in the future. But you cannot be strong in yourself and strong in God at the same time. What gap is there to fill if you don't think there's a gap? It is only where we sense our weakness that we can be strong in God. And consider this. This is, this is, this is fascinating if you think about it. All of Jesus' miracles... His whole life, you read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and you just kind of read through all the amazing things that Jesus did. Jesus always entered a place where there was a problem, a crisis, someone in need, a weakness. Jesus did not go around pulling rabbits out of the hat, catching bullets in his teeth and saying, can you believe I did that? That, that was not Jesus' move. He always went to places and to people that knew that they needed him. And so if, if we're good, well, why would we need the strength that God provides? So here's the question. Where do you feel the weakest right now? Where do you feel the weakest right now? That is an area that you ought to invite 
That's an invitation for you to trust God in that area. Those who look to themselves for strength will find it quickly in short supply. And those who are mighty in their confidence in God will find that his willingness to help and his ability to do so is a deep well that will never run dry. And here's the last thing that I need us to understand about this battle. In the New Testament, in, in, in you know, a lot of the places that Paul went, a lot of the places that Peter went, a lot of the places that Jesus went, you can read through the New Testament and there's a lot of stories about what the English Bible says is demon possession. People that are possessed by a demon. When I was studying this years ago, I wanted to know, can a Christian be possessed by a demon? And someone said, no, 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 no. A Christian can't be possessed by a demon, but they can be oppressed by a demon. I thought, well, all right, I guess, whatever, sure, I'll, I'll take it. And I'm a black and white kind of guy, and I like rules, and I like it to fit in different categories. But as you and I both know, not everything in the Bible does fit into categories. And so as I was studying for this message, I kind of broke that, and I, I thought, Lord, help me see this in a, in a fresh way. Help me to understand how this stuff works with Christians. And, and as, I, as I read a little bit more about this, and as I studied more about this, what I, what I discovered is that this word that the, some translators translated into English as demon possession is the word daimonizomai, which is a Greek word, but it's not an adjective, it's actually a verb. It's not a word that you use to describe something, it's actually something that's happening actively. And so, in my opinion, and the opinion of some people that I read and trust, a, a better word is demonized rather than demon possessed. Now, not, that's not to say that a demon can't take up residence in someone. I've seen it happen, the Bible says it happens. But, but, and it also, I would say that if you are a Christian, then you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. And so a demon cannot come and take residence inside of you. But there really is no question that a demon or Satan, he is still trying to demonize every Christian on the planet. He is still after every single one of us. He's an accuser and a liar and an attacker, and he's trying to destroy our lives. So with that in mind... Here's, here's how we need to respond to this. And here, here's how I, as a Christian, need to respond to this. Answer this question. Is there any area of our lives that is not surrendered to the Lord? Is there any sliver of our lives that we have held on to? Maybe it's a habit or a topic something that we don't want anyone to change. Is there any part of your life that isn't surrendered to the Lord? That is the part that Satan is going to try to come at you in. That is the area in which he will try to demonize you. So, so if, as an example, you have not given up relationships and purity within them, if that's something you go, man, I'm not giving that part up. That is the area that Satan will come and try to demonize you and destroy your life. If it's money, if you go, man, God can have every part of my life, but don't touch that. Well, that is the area of your life that Satan is going to come and demonize you and make you frustrated and anxious, and you're never going to have peace. 
because you haven't given that over to your life. So if you're holding grudges, if you're holding bitterness, if you're not forgiving people, whatever that area is that you have not given over to the Lord, that is the area that Satan will send his demons. And they're coming like the orcs to Helm's Deep. I knew somebody would like that. There's millions of them, and they're relentless, and they're after us. They don't care if you recognize them. They just want to destroy you. And that is why, friends, that is why as we have gone through this series about spiritual maturity in the book of Ephesians, that is why this, is, this book is so important because spiritually immature people look at the Bible and they look at God's way of living and they go, this is a lot like the Golden Corral. I can pick what I want, but I don't have to eat all of it. I'm just going to pick the stuff that I like, but the other stuff, I'm just going to leave it on the buffet. That is spiritual immaturity. And what that does is it leaves these little cracks in the seal where Satan can come in and he can still demonize us and still get in and see, plant seeds of discontentment and frustration and anxiety. And that kind of stuff can grow. But it's when we, when we grow in spiritual maturity, when we take this whole thing and we go, all right, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me right now, but I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to live life God's way. That is sealing the door shut. It is sealing the door shut. And I've tried to say this every week in the second half of this series, that if, if we go in, if we say, no matter what it says, I'm going to try it God's way, we find out that he has our best interests in mind that he's not trying to rip us off, that he's trying to help us live free. He's not a cosmic killjoy trying to restrain us and say, you better not have a good life. Stay in the box. That's not it. He's saying, I want you to live free. I want you to have joy. I want you to have peace. And if you try to manage your own life, that's never going to happen because you're leaving cracks open for this battle to come into your heart. But you do life my way. You walk in spiritual maturity. When, when you hear something that you don't like, when you don't dig in your heels and you say, Lord, open my heart to what you want, that is the space that God comes in and goes, man, I'm going to seal this thing shut. There's going to be a joy and a hope and a peace that no matter what is going on around, you're still going to have it because you're doing it God's way. So closing question, is there an area that you haven't surrendered? Is there, is there a door that's been left open? where he's coming in and, and continuing to demonize you. Shut it. Shut the door. Walk in obedience. Keep the battle out there. Seal yourself shut by walking in obedience. One way, one time every month that you have an opportunity to do this is when we take communion as a church family. So we've got six tables, two down here. Well, maybe not. Actually, they're all right back here. They're right behind you. There's four different lines, I believe. And we're gonna have a chance to take communion. And when we do this, this is an opportunity to do some self-reflection and say, is there an area that I have not surrendered? And do the work of trying to pray and surrender that to the Lord before you even go and take communion. This is reserved for people who follow Jesus. And so if that is not a decision that you've made, you can just kind of sit where you're at and listen to the music and 
maybe just pray and consider whether or not you believe this stuff is true. But Three Creeks, if you are a Christian, then we're going to take communion. I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, you guys can line up and grab it. Come back to your seats and we'll sing a song as we close. Let me pray for you. Jesus, as we take communion, we're not going to try to do it flippantly. We're not going to do it quickly. We're not going to do it just because we do it. We're going to do our best to do it thoughtfully and prayerfully. If there's an area in any of our lives that has not been surrendered, Lord, would you help us to do that today? And would you help us to believe that you're not out to get us, but you're out to give us life and life to the full. Father, as we take communion, we're celebrating the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. Above all things, God, we are so thankful for your grace and your forgiveness and that we can have new hearts through the work that was finished on the cross. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com. Thank you.